Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border. I um, have returned from Ukraine, and I will tell you all about that stuff, but I think I'm going to do that on Monday or Tuesday, because I also have articles to write for uh, Latvian media, and I have things to do with Foreign Policy magazine. And, uh, well, sadly, I'm kind of not allowed to talk about that stuff before it is published, which I will, don't worry, I just have to, you know, write articles with a deadline on Monday, so I'm going to write that article, do a lot of translation work and everything. I just do not want to redo everything twice because I have things to do now. Also, there's a speech by Alexei Navalny. There's a lot of things on the ground and everything. For a few days, you're going to get uh, quite a lot of episodes because a lot to speak about Ukraine, a lot to speak that's important that I've found out and researched. And yeah, don't worry about it if I don't touch the exact subjects you, you wanted to hear on this episode because... I just understood that if I will try to put everything that I want to talk about that's important together, then we're going to reach Dan Carlin levels of uh, episode length. And although that'd be cool, I don't think that um, when I talk about the news and the war, that's a four-episode thing, four-hour episode thing. I will turn into four-hour episodes once this is over. I really want to do more Dan Carlin-y, super long ones, but right now, well, it is what it is. But um, yeah, situation in the front. Following that. I think that's going to be on tomorrow's episode. Again, don't worry, we'll cover everything, just I'm back and I want to do some work. And I spoke with some economists and um, other things, because you know, you know I like the economy stuff, because wartime news and everything, I'll fact check and double check everything, but um, I want to talk about the economy once again. It's always fun to do that. First of all, I would like to remind you that um, today, on the 12th of August, Russia <laughs> experienced largest and heaviest naval disaster in history, back in 2000. The death of the crew of the nuclear submarine K-141 Kursk has as a result of an explosion on board due to violations of weapons handling techniques and just messing, messing stuff up. Oh, and if you ask the Zed guys and conspiracy theorists, then it was obviously as a result of a collision and torpedoing by a foreign submarine in the Barents Sea. Uh, that's sort of stupid version, but it exists there. 95 out of the 118 people on board of the Kursk were killed in explosions instantly. The blast wave destroyed the bow of the boat down to the reactor compartments 5 and 5 bis, but uh, the crew members of the Kursk who were in the 6th, 7th and 8th compartments survived for a bet. 23 people in total. They decided to move to the 9th compartment, the so-called survivability compartment, took with them food and water, individual means of rescue and everything, air generation, sealed the bulkhead and uh, did everything to live on the sunken Kursk as long as possible, waiting for rescue, where, you know, where at that point Putin just said, Anautanula, it sunk, and rescue, like, help was declined, and we found out all about this, where Captain Kolesnikov's last lines were written, and now everyone knows them. That happened back in year 2000, just saying. Why it matters is that this is no surprise, this is something that touches on even today with the naval strikes. This Kursk thing, thing just um, strikes up all the Z patriots, which is relevant, so I'm mentioning this, strikes up all the Z patriots in contrast to that response of Russian government back then. They even had some freedom of press, there was criticisms. But today, seeing with all the naval attacks, they sort of remember this. Because of current events and current incompetency of uh, Russia, how they're doing in this war, the Z patriots are getting angrier and angrier. And like I said to people in our Patreon chat, I think that um, one, of the, one of the ways, the most likely way how this, is, this war could be over is that 
Russia currently just needs just a tiny push to go over the edge and collapse internally to create all sorts of troubles. Girkin was totally right about that. And remembering Kursk on this day and seeing what's happening right now with the Navy, that could push on. Besides, currently, Russia is doing some other weird things. For example, today, instead of trying to fix up whatever they're doing, to the much chagrin of all these Zed Patriot guys, Russia's defense minister, our good old buddy Shoigu, and uh, the head of Rosatom, that's State Nuclear Energy Corporation, in case you didn't know, Alexei Likachev, they visited Russia's central testing grounds on the Novaya Zemlya archipelago. Novaya Zemlya is um, interesting because the uh, defense ministry released a statement regarding that visit indicating that the testing grounds had historically been used for nuclear weapons testing between 1954 and 1990. Uh, in total, by the way, during this time, I looked, looked this one up, 132 nuclear explosions happened there. Apparently, apparently, the current primary purpose of the testing grounds is the preparation and evaluation of advanced models of weaponry and military equipment. And um, journalists who wrote about this highlight that in late February, President Putin mentioned that there were discussions in Washington about the potential testing of nuclear weapons. And Putin warned that if the United States were to proceed with such tests, Russia would respond in kind. I uh, haven't heard of such, such things, but, you know, could be true. Got to check on Dmitry Kolyazev, but we have a lot of things to talk about. See, the thing is that um, Russians might do a nuclear test. They they have maybe figured out a way that a test should be done. By the way, this is something that Zed Patriots wanted to do, to show Russia's nuclear power. We might get a nuclear test and then, you know, see what happens. Again, it's, this is interesting because instead of fixing all these things and fixing their own logistics and learning how to deal with drones, they're thinking about nuclear tests. And I really don't see it as anything else but provocation. And that's sort of very stupid. In the meantime, remember though how I spoke about how Russia's population is dying out? Yeah, well, that's not the only case. This whole impact in Central Asia, what, what other thing could lead to all this sudden collapse is the fact that, according to the latest data, approximately one-third of Tajikistan's population has migrated to Russia. Apparently, as of 2023, the number of Tajik citizens in Russia has surpassed 3 million. By the way, the entire popula population of Tajikistan is 10 million. This indicates that a substantial portion of the country's population has relocated to Russia. Additionally, so this statistic does not e include migrants who have acquired Russian citizenship or, or who have acquired residence permits there. Just the Tajiks with just Tajik citizenship leaving there. Uh, if you add those up, then you add uh, have another 500,000 people. And uh, Tajikistan's government has become aware of this fact through well, these recent news, which is interesting. And in response, they are planning to conduct inspections in several Russian cities, Ufa, Moscow, Petersburg, all, all those places. And the purpose of these inspections is to understand the living conditions of their citizens residing in Russia. I just find it funny. This initiative is being carried out by uh, Tajik President Emomali Rahmon. Tajik government is apparently openly stating that they express uh, their, its commitment to safeguarding the rights and interests of its citizens abroad. Well, of course, interestingly enough, there has been no mention of implementing measures to improve living conditions within Tajikistan itself, so that, you know, they uh, they would have to leave. But it is funny. Again, these ethnic tensions that I mentioned in the this whole depressive episode a couple like before I went to Ukraine. At the same time, while the army is testing out nukes and people are being sad in this historic day and Tajiks are moving in, Alexander Dudka the appointed head of the village of Lazurne in the annexed part of the Kherson region, has now found more ways how to threaten people. 
See, the thing is that um, residents of the village without Russian passports will be denied access to medicine purchased from, purchased from the Russian budget. He made this uh, announcement on the Telegram channel Sirena. Dutka's statement basically targets people who need insulin. He noted that this would impact all of the humanitarian as well. In a video posted on August the 10th, Lutka criticized parents whose children stopped sending, sending, whose children stopped attending school after Russian forces took control, control of the city. He threatened these parents with administrative and even criminal liability and mentioned the possibility of relocating them to Ukrainian schools to study if they showed a disregard for the Russian language. This uh, thing is obviously quite sarcastic, really. He made threats that they, well, they might be sent off and everything. Just, just crazy, to be honest. He threatens that, you know, he mentioned the possibility by this, uh, I mean, that uh, those are very wild threats, just saying. I'm just quoting the official reports on this, but I should make this one clear. And uh, this is not the first time, by the way. In June, he also stated that those without Russian passports who would not collaborate would also be unable to receive any aid, find employment, access pensions, and everything. Yeah, of course. These newfound regions are crazier. Yet at the same time, and this one comes from Nevzorov, which is favorite because I found these news from my favorite talks in the Nevzorov. There's a city in Russia where um, right now the living are envying the dead. It was one of those Novichorkask things. See, in this town, all the available... <laughs> basically, in this town, the morgue's cooling systems just went down in this city. And let me just double-check this. It's 5 a.m. in the morning as I'm recording this. Uh, good that I checked. It's not Novocherkask. It's Novo... Um, Novo... An Novo... Anyx. That's... Uh, <laughs> sorry. That's a very interesting thing there. <clears throat> Russian cities that are hard to pronounce, even for me sometimes, especially when I'm super tired after Ukraine. Anyways. And um, all the available air conditioners right now in this whole place have been put into their service. As, see, the deceased, as the morgue's cooling systems totally broke, broke down, <clears throat> the deceased have been promptly returned to their families and loved ones with instructions to take them home and ensure they receive cool breeze of the conditioners. And my friend Devzorov comments on this uh, bit snarkily as usual. Quote, For an evenly distributed chilly airflow, it's recommended to position the departed uh, in an upright or seated posture rather than lying them down. As for the air conditioner itself, it can be adjusted either clockwise or counterclockwise, depending on familial customs and religious preferences. Enhancing this comfort scenario, turning on the television and tuning it to the deceased's preferred program could provide an extra layer of solace. While the concept is clearly intriguing, its reliability might be somewhat limited. Human beings are inherently perishable, and the inevitable course of necrosis and necrobiosis stands and sway. As the challenges concerning import-substituted mortuary refrigeration units threaten to become a widespread issue, Russians might find wisdom in exploring the traditions of the Angu and Dani tribes of Papua New, Gu New Guinea. These cultures practice hot smoking for their deceased, <laughs> yielding, yielding very hot, uh, hot end result. By the way, Nevzorov states at the end, such a practice could potentially lend even more grandeur and educational value to the processions of the immortal regiments. Now, why am I telling you all of this? These are like the news from Russia, which would normally go into the weird Russian news segment. You see, it's because at the same time there are nuclear threats, there's massive tragedies people remember, and things that they yell at the Russian government, and people from Tajikistan move there. However, 
there's a little thing which now says that Russian economy itself, in addition to all of this stuff, might be going doing poorly. Currently, Russia has hit 100 rubles per dollar exchange rate. Well, it used to be hit it at the point of, of happening, what was happening as I was recording this for a second at least. It's very close if it's not 100. It's not very descriptive. It's not inherently positive or negative on its own, at least so I think. But it serves as kind of a mirror showing us the ongoing trends with this whole economy in Russia, which is important because, you know, good economy usually has working mortuary, mortuary morgue freezers, and you don't have to give them the disease back to the people and tell them to cool them themselves. Despite official affirmations, Russia's economy grapples with a lot of challenges. Has it trying to kind of acclimate itself to this new war didn't expect? The, the oscillations in the ruble rate underscore Russia's economy's vulnerability in the face of face of the strains posed by by their their war. This, of course, contrasts the official narrative of unyielding and resilient economic ma machinery, which is what the official narratives are saying. And now, with all this, I really want to explain how this ties together with the previously mentioned news, and what are the ramifications of this economy, and why I truly believe that, uh, again, Russia will probably have a new time of troubles and have internal issues uh, of all this situation, and how the war can possibly go. Tomorrow I'll do more political stuff. It's just that I had some, I had this pleasant, had some pleasant time talking with and interviewing some economists about this. So this is really good. So how how all this happens? See, Mr. Putin, whom people in the West often portray as a cunning geopolitical strategist, mm. adept at maneuvering whatever. <laughs> yeah, he has th stirred Russian nation into a situation where uh, the lives of the citizens are well worse than before the war, obviously. And this is why the mortuaries. And at the same time, they are all dissatisfied about all the Tajiks. And this kind of shows how Tajikistan itself, what's happening there with their own citizenship. The reality on the ground is it's weird. For From a political standpoint, it's important to understand the Kremlin's tactics in, in managing this whole affair. How, how they have done this with their economy and everything. This goes through the whole population. The manner in which um, the government navigates economic challenges, of course, carries significant consequences for for ordinary citizens. Yes, I am trying to use more sophisticated words. My one of my students, Einars, told me to mm. improve my English once again a bit. I should focus on that, which I'm doing. And by the way, this is important because if the ordinary citizens are unhappy, then they will not go to elections. And the elections here, as we all know, they're totally fake. However, they're also a chance for Putin to show that he is still popular. And he show he needs to get high votes, high actual votes, not just, you know, rigging the election results, to show maybe to his other elite that he's still the charismatic leader, that the people are behind him. You know, it is a way of power for him. And this would this could influence quite a lot of everything. In light of these intricate intersections of all this, Economic struggles, political choices, citizen responses, and the war. This is the economy thing becomes important again. There's a saying there that um, in Russia, that one day the freezer will will beat the TV, which means that at the point where all these events happen and when Putin becomes useless because he cannot provide sausage, then they'll start asking for something else because that so far has been the Russian system, you know, the Russian citizens have been given more and more goodies, 
and then they don't care about politics. Once they don't have goodies, then they start caring about this. And the guy said, like I said, we might be very close of, uh, of something big. See, while the ruble's trajectory toward the 100 rubles per dollar mark is an ongoing tale, the point here is not merely the numerical value, although people really care about this. In Eastern Europe, before we had euros here in Latvia and the Baltics, we also fell out this exchange rate a lot before we got back to euro. The thing is, volatility is the reason. This aspect, these unpredictable fluctuations, places Russia among the top three countries in the planet with the most volatile currency. Currency swaying unpredictably. This instability has effects across industries, affecting long-term contracts and short-term deals. And from all sorts of deals everywhere, defense agreements, civil agreements everywhere, if the ruble fluctuates wildly, it's bad. And this has become a hindrance across all sorts of places there. Indeed, the exchange rate at all is, after all, not an isolated value. It serves as a barometer of the kind of systemic issues pervading an economy. Just as a headache signifies an underlying problem, rather than being root cause itself, an exchange rate, to those of you who maybe are haven't spent a ton of time studying Russian economy for previous two months or something, acts as a kind of a marker revealing the overall health of the economy. It's kind of something, showing that something is wrong. Currently, well, let's look at all these challenges. Those of you, by the way, who um, are regularly listening to this podcast, you should be know, you should know by now how economy works there and how everything happens. But um, obviously, not all of you are here and I was gotten, gotten complaints that I should be more friendly to new people. This is why I'm just to turn to Ukraine and doing this bit more explanatory thing. See, the peculiar thing about all this is how the Russian population traditionally, typically reacts to fluctuations in this exchange rate. When the war started, when it entered its new phase in February 2022, as Ukrainians would say, everyone was just staring at this fix exchange rate. They were, eyes were fixated on it and everyone was just using it. Notably, Russian ministers, Putin himself and Nabil, Nabiulina, the leader of the central bank, and Silyanov, made concerted efforts to maintain the stability of the value. Basically done by Silyanov and Nabiulina the most, and everyone in the West seems to agree that, uh, yeah, it didn't collapse because Nabiulina was doing things. This wasn't due to any fundamental importance of, of this exchange rate itself, rather because uh, this is the most perceptible change for ordinary citizens. Standard people, they, they don't see in Russia, you know, prices instantly, the inflation, anything, but they can see the exchange rate, and everything must be okay and prepared to look nicely. Consequently, substantial resources were invested to maintain visually pleasing numbers on currency exchange boards. Thus, in response, many Russians in comments on, on like all sorts of videos fe featuring professional economists like Dmitry Potapenko, whom I watch all the time, posted with statements like, why worry, economy won't collapse, look at the exchange rate, it's not even like 130, this means things aren't that dire. In reality, the situation there is uh, quite dire indeed. I mean, the sanctions by Western nations, by all of us, is proving effective, albeit... Gradually and slowly. The economy obviously is a massive, massive, massive system. And they just will continue growing. Don't believe anyone who says sanctions are not working. This year the sanctions targeted Russia's key export commodities, like oil and everything, and the full impact is now becoming evident. Much of the unfolding economic scenario, by the way, that we're talking about here is the consequence of decline in oil revenues. Of course, Russia is... Uh, mm, quote, grappling with considerable challenges in trading its oil. Western markets 
offered the most favorable prices for Russian oil, and the proceeds from these sales aided Russia in reinforcing its budget and bolstering reserves following these initial sanctions. I have to remind you, this is um, what Viktor told me, and what people have looked at. Russia's economy, if you take out the oil, is about the same size as the Netherlands, and uh, yeah, per capita, it's behind Portugal as well. It's just crazy. So, Russia obviously looked at alternative markets and redirected a significant portion of its oil to countries like India and China, which they also used to kind of get in microchips and everything. However, the situation with selling oil to India introduced a unique challenge due to transactions being carried out in rupees. You cannot really easily exchange rupees. And they were also selling them at a massive discount. This created, uncertainty, this created problems because no one knows where to do with them. No one wants these rupees. But... Uh, there are a lot of political implications on this. The problem with the rupees is that, yeah, you know, you can't sell them, you know, get them in rupees, and, well, that is bad. The problem there is that uh, <clears throat> prevailing notions suggest that economic hardships would naturally be increased discontent among the populace, even with, um, with these rupees. That's just one thing. The rupees affected the whole exchange rate. Because what do you do with the rupees? You can't buy stuff from India. You can only buy the parallel imports, which is what they're doing. However, however, the notion that just because, you know, they're, they're facing problems and they can't really get money for everything that has, that has caused economic issues now, again, you in the West would think that um, would be government change or protests. But um, when you look at the past crises, in Russia especially, the direct relationship between economic difficulties and political outcomes is not as straight. In 1998, yeah, even the country went bankrupt. There are tons of variables out there. Despite the intricacies involved, it's evident that events in Russia, with these economy challenges and what's happening here, and with all the news of Russian people being sent back, they're dead, because they are hardships. Yeah, this is eroding the loyalty the citizens have towards Putin. This erosion leads people to question, question basically, start to question the government, question Putin, and start you know building their own interests, and how you know how their own interests align with the government one. Because like I said, in Russia, apathy has been fostered, and now economy is bad because there is no sausage happening here. And uh, due to the, due to basically, of course, there's this hard to find hard data on this, but. Um, people might become active and people need to be active about all this situation there's a lot of um, a lot of sociological sociological questionings and questionnaires where i'm looking at this stuff and of course sociology can't really be trusted in an authoritarian regime but there's economical problems and um well sociologists might assert the comprehensiveness in whatever surveys they are making the reality is that um they're useless because the atmosphere on fear of repression makes honest expression of opinions by the public nearly impossible. No matter what, no matter the fact that sociologists in Russia might state that everything's good and fine and that they're being tested by propaganda. Therefore, everything's compromised. However, indicators, by the way, even though we can't trust sociology, there are a bunch of indicators awaiting, that show waning loyalty to the current government, which is why it is pushed back, including like Girkin himself. You know, Girkin was arrested that uh, angered the angry patriots, but now the worst thing that could happen, the very worst thing, that even dumber than arresting Girkin, would be letting him out. Because imagine what he would do. Lots of things. Recent research 
which I have dug through a lot, has unveiled a lot of insights, especially in the context of regional election campaigns. See, national, national elections, because there's going to be a united day of voting in Russia very soon, national elections may, may appear predetermined, yet regional elections, like city councils and all this stuff, they actually have some competition, varying degrees of. Some candidates seek to capitalize on the situation and they introduce some elements of competition with their campaigns to show that they're actually active and political. Interestingly enough, by the way, none of them is, none of them is talking about the war. And although federal channels emphasize a positive portrayal of the war, highlighting unity and patriotism, yeah, some guys, even from the United Russia Party, they just choose not to do anything. They are evaded. Any, any discussions about the war and military operations. Why? Because these, these discussions do not translate into more votes. In regional context, in all these regions of Russia, which could one day just split apart, fall in the way how I presume Russia is going to collapse, yeah, it's not popular there. Basically, transitioning, transitioning to the economy straight up, and if you sue this stuff, yeah, the decline in loyalty is just weird. You can't just blame this stuff, but the war is getting worse, economy is getting worse and everything. And despite official narratives and public displays, majority of Russians, again, remain, remain indifferent to the events in Ukraine. Assertions that every Russian supports Putin, and then even from those who endorse the government, yeah, that's not exactly the reality. Active support for the war is not as widespread as portrayed. For instance, the anticipated queues of volunteers at military registration centers, which should support things, are notably absent, and when the Z propagandists walk outside and get their things done, you know, in order to find out what's happening and maybe people want to donate, yeah, only the Z patriots uh, do this support thing. Nothing else happens. Therefore, that, that is also a problem there. Despite media campaigns and promises of compensation, Russia has struggled to attract any of these volunteers. As a result, now, conscripts are being used massively. However, even these conscripts are not enough. Rotation is inadequate and military's effectiveness is being questioned by the Z patriots and these, these guys like, Gir like Girkin, who is now in prison, and now people are trying to shut up, and it's not working. But again, everything is kind of... Um, Weird. The general population, again, is very apathetic. And, well, they're not pro-war, as Putin would want, but, you know, not, not against it as well. They are neutral as long as they're being left alone. See, see, that's the thing. Given Russia's size, each individual there faces their own lives and challenges out there. This isn't meant to rationalize or, or pass moral judgments, but... Um, you know, ignoring the war and suffering of Ukrainian citizens cannot be justified. However, the level of empathy and active response really varies among individuals due to their personal circumstances. Trust me, this will make sense in the end. It's imperative to kind of to recognize the fact that they live different lives within this whole huge nation of Russia. Furthermore, discussing the lack of empathy for those suffering, by the way, you know, like Putin strikes on elderly homes, yeah, can be disheartening. Because, weird, might indicate some deficiency in compassion if they don't understand how elderly shouldn't be bombed. But um, despite this, sadly, the majority of Russians truly are just neutral. See, historically, again, carrying on to the economy stuff, why are they focusing on their own lives and concerns and, and why that matters in regional elections and why economy matters of all this, in all of this situation, politically? See, historically, Russia hasn't been a wealthy nation. The leadership accumulated substantial wealth from raw material sales, particularly to Western countries. 
But these resources were not used to enhance infrastructure, do education, do healthcare, or anything. No, no, no. As we all know, they basically bought yachts, paid themselves glorious salaries and opulent residences, and like Kostin and Sechin, who get billions of rubles and buy dodges for their family in like Western countries and everywhere. So, again, you all know this, but just to recap for the new people, beyond major cities like Moscow, Petersburg, Yekaterinburg, the majority of Russians lead markedly different lives. Many grapple with making ends meet on modest salaries. A lot of them out there. The average, like average and median Russian salaries are skewed because of Moscow and these big cities there. Like average, I think the median median Russian salary was 40,000 rubles, which is about 400 euros. And the average Russian salary is 600, 600 euros, basically. It's, uh, it's like 60,000 rubles. But those are like the big cities and they skew it. And many people grapple with making ends meet on salaries ranging between 20,000 and 30,000 rubles. That's again 200 to 300 euros. This economic structure might not be an unintentional flaw, by the way, but rather a feature, so to speak. See, a population facing financial hardships is more susceptible to control, manipulation, and influence. I've seen instances like enticing volunteers to join the front lines with promises of higher pay or securing votes through handouts and I remember last Putin's elections the handouts were like even like macaroni or something people want people are being told have been told all their time that you know I'll give you sausage but you you don't want democracy and you know if you provide but you only provide so much sausage not actually improve their lives but you know give them a fish instead of teaching them how to fish and just keep them sad as possible, just so you don't have to give them as much more. And, uh, well, these policies are pretty much acknowledged by the Russian leadership. In the context of war and declining revenues, non-military expenditures are often the first to be slashed. This can prompt inflation due to a specific group of recipients receiving significant sums suddenly, creating an economic imbalance. The introduction of this money derived not from increased productivity or something inventing new, but rather from budget allocation, contributes to inflation. And these are recipients who get these handouts from this constitute a minority compared to Russia's total population of around 140 million, according to official data. However, their financial gains, especially in Moscow, wield substantial influence on the economy, given their disproportionate spending habits. This infusion of funds without the corresponding growth in the economy, obviously, again, blasts up inflation. And that's a big problem here. Of course, I'm not an econ economist. I've, I've just studied economists and everything. But, um, but again, these aid things that you get, you know, for Ladas, yeah, you know, one lady gets like 10,000 rubles and she gets a lot of, and she gets basically a whole monthly salary of, um, of basically a Russian village out there. And sure, she gets to spend and throw a lot of money out, out there, but in these smaller villages in these regions where these guys are running, where there is some competition, yeah, the fact that uh, some people are now way richer than others does impact especially local inflation, which makes the already poor rest of the people even poorer. But not like even Putin understands this economical stuff. <laughs> like, these are complex issues, and even someone you know, who's a president doesn't understand basic concepts of that, like I said, take studying. For example, I highly doubt that Putin had any awareness regarding the potential negative repercussions of Russia's withdrawal from the grain deal and how it would happen with African countries. 
And then he didn't even know how much grain did they need and offered well, offered like smaller amounts than it was like needed less than 1% of what Ukraine was delivering. Because he simply does not understand how and how much grain is needed there. But um, yeah, thing is property market again, an economy. Inflation has been going there on for a long time. And like I said, it's caused because random people are given just printed out random cash without anything productive. What happened was like their, gov- their their person died out there. Someone died and you get a new lot, but those lots also cost money and they're given in cash form as well. But nothing was produced. There's this thing that there is no secondary benefits. If you buy a car or a tractor, then you can produce something with it. If you, sh- if you build a rocket and shoot it, then it does nothing more. And technically it counts as your GDP, that there's no economical benefits from that. Now, while comparing Russia's property market to a pyramid scheme isn't entirely accurate, it's still being very challengeable. That's the thing. Everyone in Russia wants their apartment things. The smooth situation in the in the property market inside Russia hinges on continuous expansion. And again, numerous experts in Russia, including the same Dmitry Potapenko, they were they warn of a massive crisis of a bubble that could potentially lead to collapse. The problem is that currently, property prices are still on the rise. However, this is propelled by more inflation, what I spoke previously, rather than organic growth. Although the banking sector is reporting record profits, is simultaneously contending with a, with a range of threats. The problem is, again, why what also is causing inflation is... Um, the loans. This whole episode started out when I started to figure out the loan market and economy there in Russia because I heard a lot of situations about this whole situation, how Russians are overcredited, and I wanted to understand what this was. So here you go. A lot of individuals in Russia, a lot of families and households are taking insane amounts of loans. Insane amounts of loans. Uh, 50, like 17% of families have this, you know, have to spend 50% of their income just on loan payments and have like three or more debts. And everyone has a debt. Russia is like massively overcredited. And obviously, as people accumulate loans that strain their ability to repay, the banking system finds itself under tons of pressure. And if a critical mass of individuals becomes incapable of doing their things, then, well, we're gonna have 2008 crisis. But, you know, salaries are small. Inflation is happening. Yeah, ruble is getting, you know, fluctuating around of everything. But they have to slash payments. You have to slash aid. So they take loans. Levels of incredited indebtedness among the populace is always escalated. It was like 3 billion rubles, the indebtedness of everything. And, you know, another thing that hurts the economy and makes everyday life even worse, besides the fact that everyone has a massive loan, poor, poor salaries, and inflation just plops in everywhere, is um, basically impact of sanctions on Russia's exports. To be more precise, the influence of Russian imports is substantial. A considerable, a considerable array, sorry, Russia's imports. A considerable array of goods has like vanished from store shelves and production facilities. This includes equipment and merchandise that was like acceptable. A notable unsanctioned trend, by the way, has emerged. Large corporations are departing Russia, and from all, all all countries, obviously. And this exodus isn't an outcome of sanctions. When just sanctions happened. They they like quit less. This is why you hear now now again and again more and more campaigns are like just going away from Russia, even though they you know had been there previously. See Putin's decision to nationalize certain companies 
we spoke about this in previous episodes, has accelerated this exodus. By, by assuming this control over companies and nationalizing them, he's just destroying all predictability. It's just kind of important for international deals. The absence of predictability, coupled with escalating risks, well, you know, they want money. They really wanted money. And they were ready to ignore some sanctions and just work, continue working there. But right now, the risk is even like increasing more and more and more. This just causes a ton of just shortages everywhere, besides even the sanctions. And industries, remember, these businesses are not maybe the ones in the short, just on the threshold, but, but like everywhere. Industries such as the oil sector in Russia currently are experiencing this whole impact. Because they now lack quality equipment and they, they have the dec- declining production levels. Every sector there has a unique set of challenges contributing to this whole intricate stuff here, so I don't know what's important for everyone, but uh, yeah, you know, you, you can't really, you can go over the sanctions by importing stuff from China or Kazakhstan, technically, through this gray stuff, but the chains are broken, everything is kind of bizarre. So, as you can see, these problems are compounded, and the exchange rate of 100 rubles per dollar, yeah, this serves as some sort of a symbolic representation of what's going to happen. As production dwindles and the scarcity of goods deepens, prices surge even more, further exacerbating inflation and eroding purchasing power. The average Russian citizen can now afford fewer community, fewer stuff due to the fact that, you know, he has less money and uh, there's also less that he can actually purchase. It's, it's like from both ends. And even the acquisition of a basic car becomes a formidable task for the average Russian. Entry-level Chinese cars in Russia cost about 2 million rubles, and their availability is limited. That's uh, $20,000, or euros. Euros and dollars are approximately the same. So, all all these declines in life, in quality of life, all over the place, to people who are apathetic normally in doing things, well... This uh, this whole thing brings us to this political facet that I find interesting and, and notable. What does it mean for this happen? The upcoming presidential election slated for next year will offer a, gr- a glimpse into public sentiment. This is what Putin really needs. Obviously, Putin is going to win this. He has like no no authentic rivals whatsoever. He's going to pick his spotting partner and win him. Because obviously, electronic voting systems and, and all sorts of fabrications and everything will just destroy everything. If you didn't know that Russia has no elections, if you're listening to this for the first time. But again, the elections will be accompanied by rhetoric and campaigns. But um, discontent with ongoing concerns such as the war, diminishing living standards, escalating prices, real estate instability, all this mess magnifies a lot of questions with, with how and whether or not people are going to actually go there. Because like I said, there could be a lot of problems with people and it can cause some riots and revolutions, but for the most part, this is important for the elites because Putin, you know, he really isn't, his power base is the fact that people like him and people have to like him. That's the problem. The Russian economy is doing a lot of things and economists don't, don't do a lot of predictiveness and they're not very good at it. However... All this situation together means that Putin, you know, might be pushed aside for for someone a bit more popular. 
who could like either you know vetted out or regions might want to leave because they are all folks the original stuff see putin needs these elections to get some more legitimacy he needs this whole this whole everything he needs this so that he can say to the people you know suffer a bit more he needs to show or he might be pushed aside or regions might leave that if, if like putin can't say that 90 percent voted for him if no one goes and votes because that's the reasonable thing. And some oligarchs like might abuse their power. Prigozhin might even come back. That would be interesting. And also, sanctions, of course. And that Russia's economic capabilities have been proven more impactful than those targeting military supplies alone. Even if supply chains remain intact, reduced economic opportunities have a huge bearing on Russia's capacity to fund and sustain its war efforts. That's the thing. This affects war expenditures and diminishes overall income. Why I mentioned the elections and all this economy stuff? Because there are two things happening there, like two rushes going on. And we'll be talking about the other one tomorrow. But put in Putin's head he has election to he has elections to win. Traditionally you feed people, you know, prianiks and, and give them good stuff. Before elections normally Russians Russians' lives improve. The apathy, you know, you you, you have to prove to the poor Russian electorate that um indeed they're going to live well and it's going to be nice. Everything's going to be shiny in Russia. <laughs> and you need money for that. You need to show things. Like, you need to give them their little bit of sausage. The problem is right now the sausage is going away. This doesn't happen. And the other side, by the way, that's fighting against them is the war party, which is stating, yeah, you know, slash everything, give more money to the war effort. We need to smuggle in all sorts of chips and whatever. And these two systems, the military command, together with the party command that actually wants to do the fake elections to show the oligarchs and their real power base what's happening, yeah, they are just fighting against each other. And the fact that they have slashed, slashed a lot of economical aid, that all these things are happening that people can't even get into, that people have to take back in some places their dead ones from the morgue. And the fact that prices are increasing and everyone's feeling horrible and taking insane amounts of loans which was by the way reasonable to do because at the beginning you know everyone thought let's just get a loan and then somehow this will end itself and we'll go back to normal life but nothing has happened this is happens when you take a short-term loan and turn into a long-term problem so this is some sort of cycle of everything the war has started the sanctions sanctions hurt the economy economy now is hurting the war and this hurts regions the most. Like I mentioned there. Moscow and St. Petersburg and Yekaterinburg, they're, they're good. But if you live on 20,000 per year, if you live in the countryside for 20,000 rubles a month and you can't fix your car because the guys who are providing the details, like spare parts for your car, have left the country, and yet you need to go and vote for Putin or something, oof, that's just messy. Normally I speak all about like, you know, all these time bombs and everything. And again, I, I hope that this was a bit more mm, understandable since I wanted to check how economy, economical rational side is doing things. Because previously I only spoke about their mentality in Russia, the, the other political reasons why I think it might, might collapse. But the economy is just in a downward spiral and a little hell drive. So, you know, if you heard my interview with Mr. Heaton when he asked how long will we fund how long will we fund Ukraine? My answer is, well, until Russia basically collapses. Because even, even everything just gets frozen right now, even then this is on the path to utter collapse due to all these problems and things leaving and just starting to crash down. At the same time, 
they want to try and do nukes again in Nova Zembla, which is just going to irritate people more and more. A bit crazy, if you think about it. But yeah, whew, sorry, I'm not that good at explaining economical stuff, and I do this from bullet points and, and a lot of quotes, and some of them are, mm-hmm. I had to literally Google stuff up and understand what's what, I try to be, I try to be comprehensive and understandable, if I have failed at this, don't worry, we're gonna have episodes also possibly of this length tomorrow and the day after that, because um, I'm gonna write my articles now, we have Alexei Navalny's condemnation of other liberal opposition things in Russia, he published an essay called My Fear and Loathing, which is funny, because I really don't don't know if uh, Navalny should be using that, that's gonna happen tomorrow, then I'm going to finish my articles for my Latvian newspaper and talk to foreign policy guys on Monday. And then on Monday, once I figure out what and when and do the scripts for that, you'll hear all about my adventures in Ukraine because I want to do that properly. That's going to be also about Russian POWs and how they're treated, what did we saw, how uh, the dam is wor- working and functioning, all the stuff. It's coming. Victor, by the way, is still there and I want some news from him as well. But yeah, <laughs> Sorry about the length and everything, but yeah, I tried to talk about the economy and I hope I did some some good work there. And if I didn't, hey, again, tomorrow we're talking about Navalny and Russia's liberal opposition again. And remember, happiness is mandatory.